Hey y'all, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we tackle topics of interest to Black folks through the lens of academic scholarship and colorful insight. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hi everyone, this is Alyssa, and I use she, her pronouns as well. So after our debrief of the AAAs last semester, you all asked that we do more casual episodes without all of the structure. So today we'll be speaking about the experience of doing fieldwork, particularly as Brennan is moving towards the end of hers, and I am finally starting mine. Finally. You know, praise be to to whomever the praises go. Uh, There there is also just so much going on in the world right now, and we simply do not have the tools to speak about all of the things that are happening uh, in a way that actually would be insightful, impactful, or powerful. So we are modeling the true black way of staying in our lane so that we do not get hit um, and amplifying the voices of those who truly know what they're talking about. Yeah. And if it's a surprise to you that even in the midst of war, people will still find the time, space and energy to be anti-black, then have you even been listening to this podcast the last year and a half? You know, if there's one thing people are going to commit to, is anti-blackness. Um, but <laughs> before we get too carried away, we want to thank everyone who has contributed to our podcast. So whether that's through being a patron, which, hey, y'all, we out here chatting up on Patreon, uh, donating via PayPal, following us on social media, or leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or sharing an episode with a friend. We truly appreciate each and every one of you. Like you're truly what keeps us doing this every other week. Thank you. So if you would like to become a patron where you can access the ZD conversations, recordings of our talks, receive a book of the semester and or invite to our semesterly hangouts, please head to patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters. Let's get into it. Let's do the thing. The thing. The thing. thing. The thing. (laughs) (laughs) Not the thing. Thing. Not the thing. The thing. 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 All right. um. (laughs) So, just to have some fodder for today's conversation, we did read a little bit of Mules and Men. We're not really going to give you a summary or anything, but it is one of Brendan's go to texts around, you know, what anthropology offers her. So if you want to read the the excerpt. Yeah. So this is from the Zora Neale Hurston, T-H-E-E, um, Zora Neale Hurston. <laughs> uh, and she says, I was glad when someone, somebody told me you may go and collect Negro folklore. In a way, it would not be a new experience for me. When I pitched head foremost in the, into the world, I landed in the crib of Negroism. From the earliest rocking of my cradle, I had known about the capers where a rabbit is apt to cut and what the squinch owl says from the housetop. But it was fitting me like a tight chemise. I couldn't see it for wearing it. It was only when I was off in college, away from my native surroundings, that I could see myself like somebody else and stand off and look at my garment. Then I had to have the spyglass of anthropology to look through at that. Like... Who else? Who else makes anthropology sound like a religious <laughs> folklore experience? Like, and I don't know if you recognize, but the 
the first sentence I was glad when somebody told me you may go and collect Negro folklore that's um very similar to a call that is made in Psalms, I believe. Mm. Like I was glad when someone told me you may go and like preach the oh. Lord's word. Like it's very much a call. Interesting. Um, so Zora definitely saw her her life in Anthro as a, as a call, as something from God. And so yeah, that's very parallel um parallel language. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, I like that she calls it the spyglass of mm-hmm. anthropology, not just because in another life I would totally be a spy. Um <laughs> but you know, I usually say the toolkit, the the toolkit that anthropology has that offers certain kinds of insights that mm-hmm. I found in other disciplines I wasn't able to see or to get. So fieldwork, even when done at home, as she's talking about, is still, you know, about being able to uncover and explain the local or member mm-hmm. meanings of concepts and experiences. And yeah. I think the thing that is, we were just talking before we started recording, I was saying, you know, Brennan was saying that she hasn't done enough interviews yet. And I said, that's not really our bread and butter. We're not sociologists. <laughs> you know, our thing is really the field work, the field notes. And, you know, that's what I think is part of that, that spyglass of anthropology. That's, that's the main thing in our toolkit that makes us anthropologists. Yeah, it's so I was always very drawn to the um, fitting me like a tight chemise. I because when I think about what anthropology has done for me and over the course of my career from undergrad to graduate school has really allowed for me to look at my experience as a black person, as a black queer woman, as someone from a low income background with a poor family like to say, actually, all this shit is constructed, right? Anthropology has allowed for me to say the shit that I thought was familiar um, and how the world is is actually very strange. And how can I take it apart and look at it? So the spyglass, also the image of the spyglass is something that allows you to look at something outside of oneself. I think it's also Mm. interesting. Like anthropology is always looking outside of itself or at the other. Um, So for her to say, well, I need that other othering, right? To look at myself, I thought was also very interesting. Yeah. And I think there's a process of also getting to know herself in in a different, in a different place. It's, it's almost like, you know, people take gap years at least I guess it's more of a European thing. You know, people take gap years when they travel or, you know, because they need to experience some kind of hardship. <laughs> I didn't know that was the gap years before. Um, <laughs> experiencing hardship. But no, I think it's going and, and experiencing your life in a different kind of way that makes you reflect mm-hmm. on on yourself and the way that you've been living your entire life. And so I... I often say that some of the most, you know, the people who are sheltered, are, they tend to be ones who don't leave their hometowns or, mm-hmm. you know, leave the very enclosed um, spaces and experiences that they've that they've had in the past. Which, if you've heard me talk about academics being institutionalized, that's one of the things <laughs> that I'm right. talking about is from 
birth until they retire. They're in some kind of educational institution um, for many of them. And that doesn't really allow them to take a step back and look at the institution in a different kind of way. Yeah. I'm I'm happy for my my little two years of hardship. I'm just kidding. Let me not let me not characterize <laughs> teaching like that, even though I had my I had my hard days that Tevin Campbell got me through. Um I I do think for those of you who are in undergraduate thinking about graduate school and listening to this, like yeah, taking that time away so that you can understand yourself more is very important. But anthropology does offer you a way to do that as well, as you were saying. So, yeah, I think we've talked before about, like, how we came to anthropology. But I want to know, like, and I know people, uh, the girls are dying to hear how we <laughs> came to our dissertation <laughs> research project. So do you want to start? Or do uh, start? Sure, like, I will start. It's really, I mean, there's the long story and there's the short story. <laughs> <laughs> And the short story is that my research project basically landed in my inbox. Um, yeah, we, love, was, a, we love a blessing. Yeah, an easy blessing. I was, you know, I because I had been living in Martinique in the past, and I was also I did some research there for my master's degree. I was getting the um, the local newspaper newsletter delivered to my to my email, and I kind of wouldn't really read them. I wouldn't really go through them because it was a lot. They come every day. And then I was just deleting some and deleting some. And at the time I was, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do for graduate school if I wanted to continue to the PhD and all of that. And I saw this project that they were launching, um, reviving coffee production in Martinique. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, this is, this is interesting. This is it. And it just, it was just like a spark that, that kind of lit this fire in me. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is a project. This is really interesting. The longer story or the longer part of that story is basically coming to, to food and commodity production and, and things like that. Um, I think food is just one of those things that every human has some kind of connection to, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody has to eat. I know, and... me especially, honey. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that... Um, that food is this really interesting product that that it, that kind of speaks to this like this metaphorical or symbolic mm-hmm. you know these symbolic things around anthropology right which is like you know its preparation is kind of part of how we produce culture how we create culture and then our its consumption is similar to how we incorporate that culture into ourselves and I think that's what really got me fascinated in studying food and um, and how people produce and, and consume it. So anyway, so yes, my project itself, <laughs> it's about the revival of coffee production in Martinique in the 18th um, century. Martinique was the first place to grow coffee in the New World. So in the coffee industry, the island is known as the gateway to coffee in the Americas. And um, Jamaica and Brazil and all of these other coffee producing countries, their coffee plants actually came from Martinique. So in the 19th century, the production kind of 
fell off and it stopped and people continued growing it, um, but there wasn't an export industry anymore. So in the last few years, um, the Natural Regional Parks of Martinique in, uh, in conjunction with a Japanese coffee company, they've decided to revitalize this historical coffee production and they did genetic research to find the descendants of the first plant that was that came to martinique so it's this whole so much money it's so much money so this much whole money. heritage project um and the goal is to you know contribute to eco to martinique's economic uh autonomy as well as preserving history and heritage and so the the question that i'm asking is why does it seem in the Caribbean that the past must always be built into the ways that we conceive mm. of our futures, you know, even when they claim to be leaving it behind, right? They're like, oh, you know, we're getting away from this, uh, this colonial connection with France and we're moving away from um, our dependence on France through this project of autonomy. And yet the reason that Martinique was the first place to produce coffee in the new world was because of colonialism and slavery. So. That's right. that's essentially what my project is. Right. It's the history that we don't speak about. Yes. It just magically makes way for things to be, you know. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. You say it just popped up in your inbox. I think <laughs> my, my story, which is not anything new, I think I came to my dissertation project by a series of coincidences that now what five years later starting to make a little bit more sense in its own way um but yeah i what 2017 i was coming to graduate school i had just resigned from teaching so i could go and i needed to make some money over the summer because if you know that public school teacher struggle you know the summer months are real hungry they're real <laughs> hungry months <laughs> So I decided to take a job at a university locally here in Baltimore that everyone knows is here in Baltimore. It's a big name. <laughs> and I worked with their Center for Talented Youth. And so it's my first time working with kids who were basically at the opposite end of the like socioeconomic spectrum from the kids that I worked with. And most of them were white. Um, most of them, their parents could afford to pay $4,000 for them to have a three-week experience. Uh, and the whole goal of the program was to teach them, expose them to different like social justice projects. So as a teaching assistant, I um, would help them help assist, which <laughs> I really was, anyway, that, that's a whole nother bowl to get into, a whole nother thing to get into. Um, as a teaching assistant, I was in charge of making sure that they had like smooth experiences when we would go out and do this kind of community-based projects. So one of the community-based projects that we did was at this local organization um, that did like neighborhood cleanup and employed the youth in Baltimore. And so before we left, I had to teach the students this whole kind of, you know, we're going to encounter black people. We're going to encounter poor black people. We're going to encounter black <laughs> kids your age, right? Who, you know, they're going to be your age. Let's talk about how we interact with people. Let's practice this Aww. so that we're not, um, we're not being offensive to them. And so uh, we did that. And then 
we were cleaning up and you know that was back when I was young so I had my young knees my young back and I was out there also doing neighborhood cleanup too so like pulling up weeds pulling up um take picking up trash all that with the kids and this is like the middle of summer Baltimore so it was like 100 something degrees but we was out here we was doing it and one of the camp Oh, no, let me not call it a camp. One of the the neighborhood um, leaders, he was there and he was in charge of the program. And he was telling me about how he used to teach Freddie Gray. And mm. he was telling me about how Freddie Gray was very much still um, a memory in the community and how everyone in the community still loved him and thought of him, even though he had been dead at that point for for two years. And I thought it was very interesting. I kept that in the back of my mind. It was very interesting. Uh, how does how he spoke about him um, being dead? Like he was dead, but he spoke about him as if he was very much still there. Hmm. And then once I learned more about Corinne Gaines and her story, I was like, why is it that this black woman isn't talked about in the same way? Doesn't hold that same memory? And so that is what unlocked my dissertation research project was just <laughs> thinking about why is it that everybody's trying to remember black men in their communities usually and i'm going to say this like usually better than how they were before they died right mm. whereas black women um if remembered they have to be remembered in a certain certain way right they have to have a certain kind of meaning attached to them and so i actually met um some anti-sexual violence activists who were very active in kind of the memorial space and work for black women and girls and through talking to them, got hooked up into my research project. And that's why I'm here, Baltimore. Uh, and it seems that I'm here for these days. It feels like I'm here for more reasons than just that. Um, so <laughs> it feels like things just came around um, in a lot of ways. But I'm very, very happy to be on the kind of tail end of my field work and moving towards the writing phase of things for sure. Yeah, sure. Oh, I I hear that um, field work is actually one of the more distressing parts of research for me <laughs> of doing all of these things. But I really liked what you said about unlocked. You know that that that's the kind of the key that that unlocked your dissertation project, that unlocked your research. You know, there's there was this key into your interests, which shows you that. The research, even though people often say this as, as a negative, but research is me search. Um, I think that there's a way in which you and myself, you know, we use our research to kind of uncover the things that we really want to know and uncover mm -hmm. the things that we're really curious about. And you may not quite have the, the framing for it or the theory for it, you know, when you first start out, but it's this process of discovery, of discovering yourself and your interests and, you know, the true questions that you have. And I spent, I spent one summer, the summer after my first year, uh, trying to really figure that out, trying to really figure out what is it that I wanted to know? What's the question that's, that's animating my interest in this project? So I did want to ask, was this, is the project that you're working on now, what you applied to the programs 
what you applied to your PhD programs for? Huh. Hmm. Was it? I, well, definitely not as specific. Like I didn't have a field site in mind. Um, my yeah, my was very broad. I think in the beginning, I kind of imagined a comparative project, like going to Brazil and comparing Brazil to the U.S. Mm. Um, definitely still focused on political movements, black youth, and women. But it's so it's so wild. That was like six years ago when I wrote that. Like I, I and I didn't believe people when they said that it would change either. Um, but I'm like, no, it's definitely not the same. Um, but it's very similar. Like I would say, it's not a complete mm-hmm. 180. It's it's like, oh, I focus on a place. I have a hook. My hook is trying to understand why people don't don't love us black women like they want to. Well, they say they do if they say mm. they do um but i don't think i could have imagined in 2016 that i would be doing what i'm doing now or where i'm at now right and sure. i i think the like, hook is your is that underlying question right mm-hmm. that one that you're really trying to discover what exactly it is that you are trying to answer what it is that you're trying to know but you talked about not having a field site in mind and one of the questions that we got on Twitter was, how do you define the field? Mm. How would you define the field? How I define the field? Yes, um, the field before is... we can talk about field work, we've got to talk about <laughs> how one defines the field. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it just depends on what kind of project you're doing. I mean, if, because mm. I think the field is not just a physical place, it's also kind of like you, wherever you're at. Um, wherever, like whatever you're thinking, whatever you're working on, um, but that's not a very like definition, definition kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like for me, the field is dependent upon my my project in of itself, right? Which is more or less, if we want to really boil it down to understanding Black women's experiences moving through the world through an anti-Black world, right? And so like as a black woman, then my life and my my experiences become part of the story, even if I don't want them to. They become part of what I have to tell. They become how I am able to like understand what's important information versus what's not. Um, and so for others who might go abroad, the field might be that actual physical place. So I might only be doing field work, quote unquote, while I'm there. But I think a lot of anthropologists now are turning towards defining the field as something that actually travels with the anthropologist and not necessarily being a stationary place. But what do you think? How do you define it? Yeah, I well, I think that historically the field was limited to the village, right? That was generally mm-hmm. what the anthropologists did is they traveled to a faraway village and that was their their unit of study or their unit of analysis, that was their levels. Then you kind of have, you know, people who start talking about interconnections and global connections, mm-hmm. you know, very much um, connected with like Cindy Mintz and Eric Wolf and then Anna Singh kind of took that and exploded it in, in, um, in ways that have been really positive. And then now, you know, of course we have the internet and all of these new kinds of sites that people consider 
and that people are looking at as the field. I often think about Trio's distinction between the object of observation and the object of study. And mm -hmm. so while your object of study might be your political movements and sovereignty, you know, and you can come at that for, through different ways. So you can, you can look at that, at that through performance or you can look at it through environmental activism or you know, people who do memory work in Baltimore. You know? So those are your objects of observation. So I think the field for me is the site or the sites in which the object of observation is located. I mean, as it's, it might be simplistic, but you no, know, for me, it's, it's the places where I'm going to be able to learn about the processes that are undergirding the phenomena that I'm trying to examine. And right, that can and I, be, you know, circumscribed in any, any way that I'd like, you know, while mm -hmm. acknowledging that the things I do learn are inherently partial. They have to be. There's no, there's no way, you know, there's, you're no longer believing the lie that you're, as an outsider, you're objective, right? That's, yep. <laughs> it's the old, the old anthro, OG anthro. We're, we're not doing that anymore. We're not lying to ourselves anymore about that. Um. But what do people say when you're like, yeah, my research is in Baltimore? <laughs> I have an idea that it, what, it, what it might be, but. <laughs> I, well, most of the time people bring up the wire, um, mm. which, you know, I have not finished watching. So, uh, and a lot of times in talking to people, they're like, you know, in interviews, they're like, it's not like how you see on the wire. And I have to be like, well, girl, I only saw, you know, a few episodes of that. So... <laughs> You know, you gotta at least, at least watch the season with the kids. <laughs> I know, but don't don't doesn't something bad happen to them the whole time I'm yeah, watching? I'm like, yo, yeah. if they kill these kids, I, I it's over for me. With children, I can't I can't watch children be hurt so, and so die. People say the why. I would have thought people would be more like, is it anthropology if you're staying in the U.S. and not studying Native people? <laughs> Yeah, I think anthropologists ask that question more. But if it's yeah. like a regular, a regular person or someone who's kind of in the know of anthropology, they're like, "Oh, is it you know like the wire?" Mm -hmm. Or do you feel safe there? I've gotten that question before. Like, do you do you like it? Um, yeah, but most of the time, people are concerned about my safety. Mm. I think here which I for me I'm like I felt unsafe when I moved to the white neighborhood like <laughs> that's now. when I where I live now because that's when people started breaking into my car when I started living over here so right um and that happened one time and nothing was damaged if you're like if you're curious but yeah so I definitely think that Baltimore has its own lore around blackness, around murder, around violence, but people don't ever really figure black women into that matrix either. Hmm. So that which is like part of my what I'm interested in understanding. Like even when you think about Baltimore like as a violent place, like people don't think about violence against women, they think about, you know, young black men killing each other. Mm. So or the police killing people. Right. Uh, so yeah. What do people what do people say about Martinique? When you say, I, I just tweeted about this actually. I said people <laughs> always say, Oh, must be nice. How nice. <laughs> oh so luxurious. You must really enjoy it. 
And I'm like, you clearly have only ever stayed on a resort in the Caribbean. Like, you don't know nothing about this life. You don't know mm. about almost being killed by falling coconut. That's happened to me. <laughs> oh, girl. You don't know. nature trying to take you out. Mm. <laughs> it really did. I was just trying to relax, but a coconut fell in my head. Um, you know, you don't know about how you can't leave any crumbs anywhere because the ants will come. You can't. You don't know about the roaches and the humidity so your clothes never dry and everything smells damp for some parts of the year. And it's just like... Today, I actually picked up, I had to pick up the dead beetle. Otherwise, the ants would come and they eat the beetles, which is very disturbing. You did, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they circle of, circle of life. It's the circle of life. You have your own National Geographic. I do. I did not know that until I moved here, you know, 10 years. It's been 11 years since the first time I've been here. And I saw a whole, like, group of worker ants just carrying this tiny beetle away. And I was like... This is so disturbing, you know, like everything has to be in the fridge. You've just, it's just a different, it's a different way of life. Like, it so is. when people are like, oh, must be nice. I'm like, oh, you've just, you've stayed on resorts where, you know, black people are paid to be nice to you where they're your servants. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. I see what kind of person you are. You don't know nothing about this, um, about this life. So I would like to know though, please get me <laughs> off this. I mean, don't get me wrong. It definitely side of the rock. Don't get me wrong. There are nice, there are absolutely great things about, you know, being in the Caribbean, being, you know, as exercise, I go for a swim in, in the ocean. But like, how is that different than someone who lives in California? It's not, mm. it's not really that different. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So we had this interesting question. Which is, which types of fields choose you? Wow. We have, do philosophers for all of us? I, <laughs> I think that's a really interesting question. Thank you. Um, what type of fields choose me? I have never been the type of person that was like, I'm interested in studying people who aren't black. Um, I'm, I was like, never me. I think the only time I've ever done that was when I was forced to do, um, a speech. (laughs) This is going to sound horrible in seventh (laughs) grade. And I had to dress up like a Nazi and do a speech in seventh grade. Yeah. I don't understand the purpose of it. Now looking back, I'm like, I don't know why we had to do that. But, um, yeah, I think it was. We were studying point of view or something. And so we all had to do our research projects on, it was a Holocaust and you drew names out of a hat. And I drew Hitler's right-hand man, whose name I can't remember. And I had to write a whole speech and memorize it from his point of view. So that's the only time (laughs) I've ever, (laughs) you know, I don't know, South Carolina, South Carolina. So I, I dressed up as Sojourner Truth once and gave her a speech. I feel like <laughs> I would have rather, <laughs> rather done that. I feel like um, I didn't really have a choice. Uh, and so um, so the fields that choose me are ones that impact black people, wherever black people are at, whatever they doing. Um, but I feel like everybody's fields choose them it's not like people just are are conscripted into things um 
Oh, I don't know. What do you think? What type yeah, of field Yeah, that you? that was my. I didn't take it as a as like a personal question about the field sites that choose me. I thought like <laughs> I took it. I took it as a more general question of you know. Oh. Um, <laughs> what kind of field sites choose their researchers? I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so my thoughts were basically that they they all do. You know, everyone. Yeah you kind of choose and are chosen by your field site, right? Because you, in the one sense, you kind of have to be accepted into it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be in, in different ways, you know? In some places, people might be given a kinship title that, you know, will then re- require them to interact and behave within the community in a particular way. Um, you know, in other places, it's like, you have to get that internship or you have to mm-hmm. you have to get people to be like, oh, yes, I trust this person to give them an interview and things like that. So, you know, we don't have anthropologists who are going to study random places. I mean, even though they weren't random, they were chosen strategically in many cases in history mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and to learn about their structures like kinship and religion. You know, as I was saying, your research is me search. So you're kind of choosing and it's also is choosing you because you're studying it because it's what you are interested in and because you have experience in it. Um, and it's, it's, it's the thing that you kind of have to do now because, you know, when you're an ethnographer, your body and yourself are the, are the tool of research. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the major tools that you're using to answer the, answer the questions that you want to know about. That I will come back to a lot by the way, everyone, that's my question. Whenever people ask me like, oh, can you help me with my research proposal? Or can you help me with applying to grad school? My question to you is, what do you want to know? That's the first thing I ask everybody. And it stumps so many people. <laughs> right. So I think, I think that good research starts with your question. Of course. It always starts within. Like everybody's always trying to move out. Hey, have you checked in with yourself lately? <laughs> um... <laughs> And then, you know, you might check in with yourself, check in with your your guides and realize that what you are interested in actually might not be something you need to be studying. Like, but that's that is another uh, conversation. That's another for conversation. Another day. I tweeted yeah. about that today, too. <laughs> I was like, give like, black women research money because you don't need another white man studying the Africans of the Gobi Desert. The Gobi Desert is not in Africa. (laughs) And I wrote it all purposely. Um, (laughs) I wrote it in that way purposefully because we don't don't need any more of those kinds of projects. But in any case... (laughs) Or or when (laughs) when I tweeted and was like, all these good jobs out here, but my dissertation is still a whisper between me and my ancestors. And all those people were liking it. And a lot of them were not black, but studying black people. And I was like, have you talked to your ancestors about this? Because (laughs) would they be on board with what you're doing right now? I mean, and maybe some of them would for wrong reasons, right? So, but like some, some of you might check in and be like, actually, the work I'm doing, it's not for me to do. I need to shuffle my money, attention time. But if they don't do it, who will? 
<laughs> and on that note, who will? Because there's nobody else in the world that can do the work that you do, right? Isn't that what they teach us? We're all unique and special. And anyway. <laughs> Isn't that what they teach us? Um, I mean, they're creating they're creating lanes and pathways for us to come in behind them. Yeah, absolutely. They're I, creating the demand for for our kind of work. You know, where would Black Studies be without white people? I don't know. Um, where would at, what is it? This whole Harvard thing is people talking about um, white people in African studies. And it's like, where would African studies be um, if the Africanists were not white? And I think, you know, it's a great question to ask somebody that, else. That is, what so, I was, that is what I was gesturing towards. <laughs> All right. Before but, we get ourselves into too much trouble, let's move on <laughs> to the next question. Which is, what is the ethnography that inspired or inspires your work? Hello. Bonjour. Ça va? Ah, en fait, uh, je suis en train d'enregistrer un podcast. Wow. French. <laughs> That's what French sound like. Oh, yes. Maybe I'll leave that in the, I'll leave it in the recording so everyone knows that I am <laughs> linguistically competent for this, for this project. <laughs> Um, okay, yes. The ethnography so, that inspired inspires your field work. I'm gonna let you go first and while I think about this more. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is gonna sound terrible, but there isn't one that inspires my field work. There's definitely ones that have you know inspired my research and um, mm. which yeah, I think you know, is that the, is that is that one and the same, but I will explain why. My fieldwork itself is, uh, I suppose, modeled on Trio's work, you know, in Silencing the Past and Peasants and Capital. Um, you know, my supervisor's work on the social life of coffee. It's called From Modern Production to, Imani- to Imagined Primitive. You know, mm. there's definitely some Sydney Mints in there as well. So, you know, I say that, I say that there isn't one that, that inspires my fieldwork specifically because the ethnography and the ethnography as in the practice and the product, they're such different Mm -hmm. beasts, right? And I don't think that Mm -hmm. anyone truly conveys their research experience in their books and articles. I don't think they ever really can. I don't think that you really get a true picture of what someone's fieldwork was like for for you to be like, this is what I want my fieldwork to be like. You know, I think the book, and even when you talk to people, it's just you just get a small slice of the experience that they've had. And the book tends to mythologize the field, the field experience, mm-hmm. right? It's like, oh, I, you know, I just came across this situation and it led to this amazing insight about political economy or something like that. And it's like, that's not really how it happens. And we don't really right. ever know what happens, you know, what happened in the field. So that's why I'd say I don't necessarily have a have a specific text that inspires my field work. That's not to say I don't have um, ethnographies that inspire my my research, my thinking, and my my anthropological practice, which I'd consider different. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction and, and probably one I would have wandered my way to in my response. I... Um... <laughs> 
I think as far as like the actual ethnography, ethnographies that inspire me, um, Vita, which I think is like a really well written. It was my first time encountering an ethnography or I was like, oh, I like reading this, you know, <laughs> I'm enjoying reading this, how, how well written it is. And then also, um, wow, the name came and then it left me, but it will come back to me. There's another ethnography written by an anthropologist. It's based in like the Southwest. She's studying um, mostly indigenous people and there um, who are recovering from you know, heroin addiction and wow, wow. And if it was sitting on my shelf, I would be able to look at it and remember the pastoral clinic, I think is what it's called. Um, but that was one that really struck me as something that I would like, I would love to write like this, uh, and make my ethnography read like fiction. Um, but as far as like methods in the field, I think Amy Meredith Cox's book, Shapeshifters is one that definitely had me thinking about ways I could, um, implant myself, I guess, more or less like. I didn't have to feel like this researcher who was on the outside. Like I could find people to work with and that be a part of my ethnographic journey and writing about that too. Cause I think she writes really well about what it's like to be working at this shelter and then being director of a shelter alongside thinking about these black girls and their experience with violence um, and homelessness and trying to, carve out a life for themselves in Detroit. So I think that um, that may be one model. Like I was like, okay, maybe I can pitch myself as an intern to different organizations and whoever is willing to let me, a stranger, in um, with all of my experiences <laughs> um, and write about my experience and also interview them. I was into it and I got turned down by a few places, so it was not easy. <laughs> Um, or, and by turn down, meaning never heard back from a few places, mm-hmm. but, um, one organization did graciously accept me and like, I'm still working with them and it's, it's really exciting. Cause now it's like, I'm doing work that really matters to me and also getting to write, um, and do things for my field work. But yeah, I would say, I guess, ethnography that inspires or serves as a model, I would definitely name shapeshifters as one. Okay. I think that's a good choice. (laughs) All right, next question. And I'm gonna combine a couple questions. So what's the hardest part about field work for you? Did you formally get taught methods in your program? Or what are you excited, worried about, wondering about most read your field work and what are your top tips slash strategies for field work notes resources etc oh honey hardest part of field work i started field work during the pandemic <laughs> um, so hardest part was recruiting people to talk to um and literally being a stranger on the internet and talking to these black women, black non-binary people. I've interviewed one black trans man. And what's been, and then also had to turn down people who didn't read the flyer and, <laughs> and 
you know, showed up and were not black. And it was very confusing to me. Um, but again, how clear can you be when you literally say, are you black on your recruitment flyer? Um, anyway, <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. You so have I'm... a very generous um, <laughs> compensation for your interlocutors. Oh, true. Compared to I... a lot of research. So I think that I would probably be that person. You know how they say um, apply to jobs even if you don't have all the qualifications? <laughs> well, honey, you do I not think, want to be a I think that your manager. compensation package is possibly what spurred those uh, kinds of um, Yes. <laughs> for those of you who are curious, um, I do. I compensate people for interviews because Baltimore has got one of the highest rates of uh, unemployment and things like that. And I want people to feel valued for their time. And I'm talking about hard shit. So... I pay people about $150 for an hour and a half of their time. Um, and yeah, I've had white people sign up. And then I have to say, well, I'm so sorry. This study is not for you. But yeah, so that's why I can't be your hiring manager because I'm not really good at sugarcoating things. <laughs> as far as being formally taught methods... Um, in our current program, there's no, there's no like methods course per se. We, they're, they're starting to change that. But when I went through, we got like a little dab of methods in our grant writing course. Um, they're like, try, let's try these things. And, and that some was of also, those, I, that was new to your cohort too. Oh yeah. It was brand new. So you were the first, first time doing it to have that. And then we had it as well. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where people kind of just assume you know how to interview, you know how to ask questions, you know how to create interviews that answer your research questions, which that is a skill, right? Like you want to learn about colonialism and history um, where you have to make sure you have questions that actually get you the answers that you want. And then if they don't, then you have to think about, okay, well, what answers am I getting? Because that too might be um, interesting, which I learned in my... In my interview process, actually, I thought I was asking people questions to get at the themes that I wanted, and then other things would emerge from that, which was really beautiful um, if you allowed to happen in the process. So, yeah, I want to what tips, strategies? I would say, please um, find a way to organize <laughs> things that you're doing. I am not a very organized person outside of like. really just school stuff um like my day-to-day i i'm not very organized it's a gemini in me i just kind of do things when i as they come um and maybe that's surprising um i don't i don't see and my therapist actually probably would disagree with me i um i don't see myself as very organized mm-hmm. but yeah um i i maybe i am but I would say, and would definitely encourage organization as far as if you are keeping field notes, keep them all in the same place. If you're in the archive, keep your archival notes in the same place. Um, if and you're having a up. schedule and back them up, <laughs> keep copies. I write by hand. We were actually talking about this before recording. I write by hand. I have a notebook uh, and 
I keep that notebook in the same place in my desk. And when it's time for me to write new field notes, um, I write there. But I also have a journal and my journal records my thoughts and what I got going on in my life. But I, as, I, as I review it, I'm realizing some of that is also kind of field note-y. Um, but since I'm not out and about <laughs> in the <notey>. streets, <laughs> like in the anthropology of old, you know, my participant observation is very much different from how it would be if the pandemic uh, did not affect how we interact with each other. Um, it's, you know, things are different. I'm writing down different kinds of field notes, I, I would say. Um, but yeah, what are, what are your top tips? Hardest part? <laughs> well, you just got started, so. Well, I've done field notes before. before. So oh yeah, the, you have. Of the first thing have. I will say is, and not preliminary, I did my, my field, field work for my master's, but not as long as this period will be. But whew, the hardest part for me is talking to people. <laughs> mm. which is like why are you an anthropologist i don't know i don't know why i chose this <laughs> i do and it's fine. actually a really basic reason but um <laughs> now i'm actually really shy <laughs> and I can see uh, that. you know people i've talked about on the podcast before social phobia and i feel like we've ne- i've never really explained what that actually is and people kind of throw around oh i have social anxiety i have social anxiety my my therapist says I have social phobia, y'all. It's not a, it's not an Instagram <laughs> diagnosis. <laughs> um, so usually, so generally, I'll just say what that means. Usually, what happens is um, if you're under pressure or if you're in a conversation or something like that, you might feel like people are constantly judging you, so your mind goes blank, and that happens to me a lot. Uh, so you, you know, that's when I'll kind of like trail off and. <laughs> stop Mm -hmm. speaking (laughs) because I've just kind of forgotten um what it was that I was trying to say and I find that it it even happens in you know close social situations so if I'm talking to someone one-on-one it's fine um but if I'm in a group and I start speaking and everybody looks at me at the same time you know obviously people change attention Mm. to this person who's speaking I will get kind of um freaked out by that and again, lose my train of thought. So anyhow, field work is itself the hardest part for me. (laughs) Is the the speaking to people and expecting people, you know, asking people for their time because I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we assume and you were talking about the things that people assume uh, that we know how, that that they know to do for field work um, one of them is that we assume people feel entitled to other people's time. <laughs> um, but there's there's an essay by Ashante Reeves um, that's really good. You know, she talks about those assumptions that we make about people mm-hmm. who will be doing ethnography, you know, particularly when it comes to their personality and their temperament. And she talks about shyness in that. And she writes that we privilege the gregarious, the able-bodied, and the linguistically agile. Mm-hmm. And whew, that is so true. So I am, I'm sitting here in my office, um, my office here in Martinique, and the anxiety about not being able to do my research because of COVID has given way to this new anxiety about actually having to do what I said I was going to do. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like part of it. I'm like, oh shoot, I have to do interviews. I have to try and get this internship at this organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you could not, but then you'd be like, 
some other people. <laughs> I was, I no, I, I know someone who <laughs> thought that they could do field work in the place that they went to do field work, and then they didn't do, they weren't able to. So they wrote their thesis about, um, like, not making connections or something like that. It was, mm. it was about, he turned it into, like, an affect project where he just Ooh. talked about, like, the feelings and experiences, but he couldn't actually speak to anyone because he wasn't linguistically prepared. So anyways, and then um, the, I think the director of graduate studies said that it was the future of anthropology. And look at us now. <laughs> look at us now. Um, <laughs> you know, not actually being able to do research with people in person. So anyways, so there's an aspect that's preparation, but there's also a part that involves just putting yourself in the right places. Um, one of, one of our beloved professors who's so lovely. Hi. Uh, she, <laughs> she explained it to me. as just like, she's like, where are you going to put your body? She was like, where, figure out a place where you can put your body and, um, you know, put yourself in a position to find out the things that you need to do. And so my advice mm. is to be gentle, be kind to yourself, give yourself grace and just, you know, let things unfold. And there's, there's a book, um, there are two books that I've read. One is called Being Ethnographic. That was really helpful. And then there's Writing Ethnographic Field Notes. Mm-hmm. Writing ethnographic field notes, I just reread it and I was like, oh, some of these field notes um, are kind of problematic and anti-black, but the, the parts about how to write field notes and the purpose of field notes, uh, I've found really, really helpful because, you know, we did get a little bit, again, of methods and I got some methods as well in my master's, but um Honestly, nothing really prepares you, even if you had a whole course, which I did. Yeah. Nothing really prepares you for for actually doing it in the field. Which is often what people use as an excuse to not teach methods. And that's that's a, that's a no. Yeah, no, I think it's better to have the toolkit and not need it than to not have it and have to kind of come up with it on the fly. Yeah. I, I think I'm privileged in the aspect that I've been coming to Baltimore for a few years. Um, meeting people through connections and something that I get from my mother is that if, if I need something I'm gonna say it or if I <laughs> if I when it's time for me to advocate for myself I can do it um, or advocate for others I can do it and I think um, I really was just very intentional about making sure even if these people don't remember me that I've met them that they so when I do reach back out I can say hey remember this event at this time like I was there we talked uh, and that's really how I got to know the um the activists that I'm working with now and it's been such a such a joy so yeah field we got a question about field work in a pandemic um do does it seem like field work has permanently changed because of COVID or does it seem like it's reverting back to kind of an in-person direct contact type of field work? I believe that what one of the possibilities that the pandemic gave us that I think so many people were so hung up on reclaiming what they perceived to be lost, right? Like this lost way of life, this lost way of contact with other people was that actually anthropology and its methods became a lot more accessible to some. Like hmm. now, so you mentioned Ashan- Ashante 
quote about the able-bodied linguistically agile like one thing about being online being on zoom is that I don't have to be necessarily able to like walk or do all these things to still conduct research so there's kind of like digital research that people kind of pushed off to the side um it's not quote real anthropology or maybe just a special kind of anthropology now it's becoming a lot more mainstream I think in my opinion or a lot more seen as a lot more valid um what do I do my I now do kind of a mixed methods approach when it comes to that so my interviews have all been on zoom um which has been interesting because then you see people's homes or wherever ever they at wherever they choose to do their interviews um ways that I would not have seen have you did in person but then I do in-person work as well with um, activists where we'll meet up and we'll talk and that's like my participant observation kind of stuff what do you envision doing do you want to share that or do you want to share some of it I know you just had to write all these grants <laughs> and stuff so you probably have a list of, of I, methods. did you see this I, I envision it to be um, mostly in person as people as people are comfortable and people are working in person because I want to do an internship right Um, They are doing that work in person and because a lot of it is farming, it's outdoors and it has to be in person, right? I can't, I mean, I have um, a backup method to understand how farmers are working and and see how they're working on the coffee farms uh, without being in person, but in an ideal situation, I would be there. So uh, for me, it would be in person. Um, I don't think that we'll be able to answer that until the COVID ethnographies start coming out cool i i think that it's like five to six years behind so yeah i i think that people (laughs) i think people can you know they'll they'll wax lyrical about digitally mediated research and all of these Mm -hmm. kinds of things right now because we have to but there are a lot of people who don't want to change the discipline, right? Who don't Mm -hmm. want us to change, who want us to continue doing what anthropologists are known for, which is in-person research and anything that is not that, is not valid, is not rigorous, is not anthropological. And so I think if we start seeing in five, six, seven, eight years, the COVID ethnographies, winning awards and all of these kinds of things and people talking about how rich and how rigorous they are, then I think it will kind of become more accepted. But until then, I think we're going to continue having professors who are going to be like, get to the field if you can. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see, child. Honestly. But speaking of them old heads who want the discipline to say the same, (laughs) (laughs) we had another question about what does fieldwork mean when there's a call to burn the discipline? I mean, I guess field work got to go too, honey. <laughs> I that's what I was gonna get ready to say, like, um, especially we talked about the ontological turn. I think in one of the events that we were at, and maybe one day on the podcast we'll we'll sit and really talk about it for real, for real, deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was already a move away from that in a sense. Or at least field work being I'm out in the field talking to other human beings about the way they live their life or in the case of the 
old heads of the discipline, observing people and assuming that I understood how they lived their lives. Um, I think there's already a move away from that. When you think about the ontological term, which is the focus on the non-human beings, um, for some, no, let me not say it for some reason, but for lots of reasons and <laughs> in the disciplines, so I think that if we are truly going to burn anthropology, right, we're going to recognize anthropology anthropology's colonial roots and say this shit shouldn't exist no more then yeah field work's got to go too field work is a part part and parcel of what it means to do anthropology i don't think you can do anthropology really or define anthropology really without it hmm. i don't know so for those of you who are not anthropologists and managed to make it all the way through this podcast episode uh, if you're wondering what are we talking about with burning the discipline. There was an essay that was published in 2020 by Ryan Jobson, um, who's an anthropologist, and it was called The Case for Letting Anthropology Burn. And since then, there have been a series of conversations and what was that thing panels. called? Panels. Panels. Seminars. <laughs> a, a series of panels and seminars and talks Hate letters. around, you know, letting anthropology burn. Um, and you know, thinking about what will come out of the fire and sure. And I think people are committed to to the process and the method, maybe more so than they are to the discipline. And I think yeah. that's you know, that's what you're talking about with the tight fitting chemise and being able to take that off and for me the toolkit and the spyglass. Um, I think a lot more people are committed to the method and the kinds of insights that it brings over the discipline and being a child of and of Malinowski and of Boaz and all of those things. Yeah. I think field work, if we think about it, like, yeah, like Malinowski, right? You hop off a boat and you're somewhere and you don't understand people's, what they're saying, but you observe them, quote unquote, you probably exert some kind of colonial power. Um, we know that a lot of these old anthropologists were going to these different colonies and like having sex with these people um or i mean we, we would hope it would be consensual in some way shape or form um but it's when you think about that as like field work in and of itself it comes it comes with like some kind of I don't know. I think if we're going to commit to field work, we're going to have to commit to maybe letting field work be a thing of the past. And we say, OK, what parts of this experience can we draw from to like to create whatever's new, which might be what you're saying from the ashes, whatever. But I don't think we could still call it field work because field work still has that power relationship. It still mm. has that that this is born out of like kind of this exploitative relationship where I as this colonial power am coming in to understand your people so that way we can um, take y'all over or exploit you in whatever way. Mm. And even those of us who do mm -hmm. feel work now, it's still like, it was a really a revelation for me when I, one of my first preliminary field work summers when I came to Baltimore and I had a realization that when I'm interacting with men, Right. Men don't see me as a researcher. Mm -hmm. Right. Like they might ask me, oh, what are you doing here? And I say, oh, I'm a student at Columbia and I'm trying to write about 
violence against black women or whatever, right? It's like, oh no, they see me as a black woman, just like the other black women that they violated. And so having continuous experiences of, of violation and having to realize that like this relationship of researcher and object or subject or agent or however you want to define the other side of that is purely constructed. Um, mm-hmm. And if you li- have a body like mine, have a body like yours, at any point in time, that can be troubled mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. So I do think, yeah, I I think maybe process, method, but also what does it mean to say, instead of anthropology existing as like a researcher coming into a community and turning the making the familiar strange and the strange familiar what would it mean to have members of that community study themselves or like produce work about themselves right which Mm. is not anthropological um but who knows would the university exist in the next two to three years let's (laughs) tbd i'm sure i will be running away (laughs) from gilead in two to three years my go bag (laughs) is getting ready um, <laughs> I laugh, but you don't even know how serious I am. We're, okay. We're, we're all preparing. <laughs> all right. So we have two more questions. Our second to last question is, how do you maintain personal boundaries with field mates? I'm in Aries and will tell you my whole life story at the drop of a hat, which is not always the best. Laughing <laughs> so hard that I'm crying emoji from Gabriella from that anthro podcast. Hey. <laughs> hey. Um, how do you maintain personal boundaries? Well, I tend to just come off as uh, standoffish, apparently. <laughs> Not apparently. Um, that's a really good question. I, I don't. Yeah, I think, but I think you do. I mean, you, you maintain boundaries. I maintain boundaries because I just have a wall up with everyone. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I think. Yeah, I don't think that's not maintain. I don't maintaining boundaries. It's not. It's think. not. On, it's not on purpose. That's that's the difference between having a wall up and uh, maintaining boundaries. That the the boundary is not communicated. It's more so just in existence. <laughs> I think. Um, I think especially in the work that I do, the things that I ask about, right? I'm asking people about death. I'm asking them about grief. Uh, a lot of times, a lot of my interlocutors, we have deep conversations about the gendered and sexual violence that they experience as children. Um, Cause I'm very interested in understanding when do black people understand violence to be a thing that's, that's a part of their life, no matter what, when and where and how they show up. Um, and so we end up talking about childhoods and things like that. I am very careful to, cause I don't want the interview to feel like an interrogation. So I'm very careful in sharing enough of my experience so that people understand that I too have experienced these things. So I too have been through, you know, all these different forms of, um, interpersonal violence, but I, am not telling my story because the, it's not about me per se, right? Like this is not, mm-hmm. um, like I'm not get, 
not compensating someone $150 to spend an hour and a half listening to me talk about myself. Like we're, we're not friends. We can be friends. We can grow to be friends. And I think, yeah, like the, the word field mates to me is, is very interesting, right? Are these Hmm. people that you, are, are these just people you encounter that you interview? Um, and if so, maybe just in internally saying, oh, this is someone that I want to talk to and learn more about their experiences than I want them to understand mine at this moment in time, right? Um, And it could be treating it like any other relationship where you want it to grow over time, right? You don't want to... uh, what they call it you want to be like love bombing or you know trauma <laughs> bonding with people you want mm. things to grow over time and maybe seeing it less as this kind of like transactional extractive interaction where where you are telling me so much about yourself i feel like i have to share x y and z you know being like actually this is the beginning of a relationship and for so for some of my interlocutors that is how I enter into the interview I say you know this is the beginning of us you might see me two or three times over the course of this year we talk etc some of my interlocutors are my friends now we hang out we spend time together but that's like and I have made it very clear to them that when we hang out this is not part of my research like I'm not going to be interviewing you I'm not going to be compensating you (laughs) for this time that we spend together because we're friends um and I think it's really easy to maintain that boundary because money's involved. Um, mm. And I mean, I've also done a really characteristic anthrop- anthropology, anthropologist thing that I won't go too deep in. But even <laughs> in that relationship, right, there's an understanding that like, um, that this is purely personal, right? It's not a part of the story of my dissertation or whatever moves forward with that. So, Gabriella, <laughs> I understand being an Aries. I understand wanting to share that fire energy. But it's really about, you know, what is the end goal? What is this project about? Like, what do you want? Do you want to establish friendships and other types of relationships with people that you encounter in the field? If so, then sure, share, share. But if that's not the end goal, then thinking about, okay, I feel inclined to share this about me, but does that actually help me reach my goals? And that might might be helpful in thinking about personal boundaries. And also making sure that people, you know, that don't have your number, that you don't want having your number, just kind of basic safety things too, I think are important to think about um, with boundaries as well. You covered it really well. Yeah, I think if you're just getting started too in this iteration. <laughs> so I feel like you're going to have... You're going to, to encounter some questions and some people and you're going to be like, oh, let me set this boundary. <laughs> let me set this boundary. <laughs> You'll see. My way of setting boundaries is just ignoring things, um, which is not setting boundaries, <laughs> as I said. In any case, we shall move on to our final question, which is actually my question, <laughs> which is what do you think would be your next research project? Ooh. That is a, that's an assumptive question, honey. I, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm just kidding. Okay. In a, in a perfect world where I could get a job as an anthropologist and study whatever I want, my next research project would be studying black 
queer relationships in political movement spaces. And for those of you who know, you know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. I am so (laughs) confused, but also intrigued by what happens in these kind of liberal to quote unquote radical spaces with black queer people, like, and the way that they relate to each other, how a lot of times gender and the violence of gender is, is, um, really, how do I say it? The violence of gender, particularly when it intersects with feminism. And I'm really, I'm not saying this the way I want to, but this is how I feel. Um, causes black trans people to be displaced from spaces that are supposed to be uplifting them and Mm. that to me is such an interesting problem right we see kind of similar things happening in black movements that exclude black queer people in certain ways where black men kind of sit to the top but in black queer feminist spaces we see black cis women occupying positions of power and committing acts of violence that are horrible. And so I'm just very interested in that process and how it happens. But that would probably be my next research project. Not going to lie. And now that I've <laughs> said it out loud and someone else wants to do it, have at it, honey. Have <laughs> at it. <laughs> I think it's interesting that we're both, that we both want to study relationships in a sense. <laughs> Actually. We're like... Those big, those big questions. We're through with that. Let's let's go to. I know. No, I mean, it it would be related. But there is a question we did a talk last week at the University of Virginia. Hey y'all, mm. thank you. Thank and you. one of the questions we got asked was, "What TV or movies would we incorporate into our research?" And at the time, I was like, "I don't know, I don't know." And then obviously, like two days later, I was like, "Obviously, it would be." reality tv yeah i was like wait we maths uh i like if you follow me on my personal account you know that i live tweet a lot of reality shows particularly ones about relationships that's something that i found particularly intriguing even since i was a child i think i talked about how i threw my diaries away and i read them over again and i was like this is really embarrassing i just seemed really boy crazy and my therapist was like no, you're interested in relationships. And I was like, you know, I've been like that for a long time. Mm-hmm. I've been interested in um, in, in love and communication and, and negotiating, um, you know, two individuals coming together. So I guess it would be something related to that, um, you know, pursuing something like that in the future. So my project now, it's about you know, it examines the way heritage and commodities and consumers of those commodities must be constructed. Mm. So, you know, maybe my future project would be about how the entertainment industry or, you know, reality TV networks construct reality in quotation marks and, you know, how that influences consumers. And, you know, I would well, love to read well, it. I would love to read it. I would love to, you know, interview me about the one reality TV person that I know personally. I yes, (laughs) look at that. You could be you. You might even be my gatekeeper. You know, look, (laughs) my key informant. 
I think I'm really good at, at providing profiles of people. So mm-hmm. it, I could do that. It could be like, oh, you, you know, your research project is a series of profiles of different kind of reality TV characters. I could provide one. The Psychopath. Excellent. Yes. Oh my gosh, it'd be so the interesting. psychopath. It'd be some kind of like psychological anthropology stuff, but mm. you know. Anyways, look at that. We did this whole episode on fieldwork, and we didn't talk about gatekeepers or key informants or anything like that. So I guess you all are just gonna have to ask us for a second episode about <laughs> fieldwork because you asked us to do this, and we gave it to you. That is our episode, everyone. Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council and donations from listeners just like you. So thank you all for the support. Like, roo roo rah rah. Thank you. Hey, hey. If you... Uh-huh. <laughs> If you like this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and we would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And for transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron, please visit our website, Zora'sDaughters.com. All right, y'all. Be kind to yourselves. Bye. 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 Especially if you're doing field